Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, welcome to the Adam Ruins Everything podcast. I am Adam Conover. This is the podcast version of a TV show that I do on True TV. And guess what? New episodes of that TV show are coming back August 23rd, Tuesday nights on True TV. And in the meantime, you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. But look, here's the deal. If you haven't seen the TV show, it's an informational comedy show where I tell you the awful truth about everything you didn't want to have to need to know. I think that's her tagline. I probably screwed it up, but it's fine. Uh, But look, you don't have to have seen the TV show to enjoy the podcast, and I'll tell you why. The way the TV show works is we have experts on. We have some fascinating people uh, from the world of ideas and technology and science and advocacy and just, uh, like, some incredible people. But on the TV show, we only get to talk to them for about two minutes. On this podcast, I talk to them for 45 minutes, 50 minutes, sometimes even an hour. And we talk about the fascinating ideas that they are experts in for a really long time. And you know what? I think it'll be educational fun, even if you haven't seen the show. That's my deal. But you know what? If you disagree, you can email me and tell me about it. That's fine. So which one are we talking to today? I think a lot of people will be excited for this one. My guest today is Bruce Schneier. He is an internationally renowned security technologist. The Economist called him a security guru, but you don't have to take The Economist's word for it. I myself call him a security guru. He was on our security episode talking about security theater, one of the most popular segments we've ever done on the show, all about how the TSA doesn't stop terrorist attacks. They just give the impression that they're stopping terrorist attacks. But we don't just talk about the TSA. We talk about internet security. We talk about gun control. We talk about so many fascinating topics. Uh, And in an exciting first for the podcast, I am not actually in the studio with Bruce. We are recording him remotely. He is in an undisclosed location somewhere in Minneapolis. So it's a little bit disclosed, but it's not totally disclosed, just so we can keep a little bit of an air of mystery. You're going to love the conversation. Just here you go. Take a listen. So, hey, I am here with uh, Bruce Schneier. Uh, Thank you so much for being here, Bruce. Hey, thanks. I'm so happy to have you here because I feel like out of all the episodes that we did last year, um, your ideas were some of the ones that stuck the most with the audience, that people were the most excited to hear and think about, that, and that it felt like there was a real need for. Um, I don't know. Was that, has that been your experience with the security theater idea? You know, I really like being on the show, uh, being stuck on a uh, 
on a scooter and in an iPad and being shuffled around. I mean, I've gotten quite a lot of feedback. That was probably the, the best way <laughs> I've ever been interviewed. So, yeah, that was pretty <laughs> awesome for me, too. <laughs> I'm really glad that you uh, enjoyed it. I mean, it kind of fit your persona as a, as an expert in the first place, that you were transmitting from an undisclosed location on, on telepresence. Um, yeah, it, uh, it definitely and, and we didn't realize because now Edward Snowden does that all the time. I mean, that's how he goes places. <laughs> using uh, one of those <laughs> devices. So we really were leading the uh, the industry here. Yeah, I don't know if you know that old uh, philosophy thought experiment where, like, if you're a brain in a vat hooked up to a robot body hundreds of miles away, like, where are you in real life? You know, that old Daniel Dennett thing. Uh, that is almost the life that Edward Snowden is living now, where he's he's in Russia, but he's also everywhere else in the world simultaneously. And that's what we're learning. You don't have to be there to be there. I mean, that's that's the whole internet. So, yeah, that was, it was great being on the show. I would gladly do it again, although you got to pick a new shtick. Pick a new shtick how? How do you mean? Like not having me on a scooter. I mean, we, we, we've done that. We could do something even weirder, like possibly me showing up in person if that could ever happen. Oh, my God. That would be that would be incredible if you indeed have a physical form. You know, I do. I try to keep it scattered because it just you know makes it harder to, to pin me down. But occasionally I coalesce for, for events and for very special uh, invites. <laughs> do, you, do you take any personal security precautions on your own? I, I was saving that question for later, but in terms of keeping your, your location or your information under wraps, are you, do you lock it down or are you of the opinion that, hey, so much is out there anyway, security is so porous that, that you're better off trying to change the system rather than protect your own individual stuff? So in a sense, you're asking a tough question because you want to know what's true, but I want to tell you what I want the world to know. So usually what <laughs> I say here is that I don't do more than you know most smart people. I lock my doors. I take reasonable precautions on the internet, on my computer, but I'm not overly paranoid. But if you're mm-hmm. overly paranoid, you'll realize that's what I want you to think. <laughs> Oh man, you are so many you are so many steps ahead of me already on this. That's amazing. Wheels within wheels, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, oh, I just have a password manager and I put a piece of tape over my over my uh, camera, but in reality, you could be in an underground bunker right now. Or I could be doing less and want to convince you I'm doing more. I mean, this could go both ways. Oh man, do do you feel like there are people actively trying to try trying to get into your stuff or You know, I don't. I have a very good reputation in the community. I mean, I tend not to be a target because I'm you know, try not to be a jerk. Uh, I'm sure uh, governments do try, have tried. You know, in some cases, there are things I can't prevent because there's way above my pay grade, so I worry less about them. How so? You know, I, what, what kinds I, of things? No, I mean, I have, uh, you know, been involved with the Snowden documents. Mm-hmm. You know, so in, in those early months, I was one of the people who was reading them. I see. And that made me, to some extent, a target. Wow. For governments who are interested. I mean, that's years past, but that was something I had to decide that I was going to do this even though there were risks. Got it. But when you are in that situation, you, you sort of think to yourself, hey, I'm taking reasonable precautions, but I'm not going to live in fear of the, you know, whatever three-letter government agency coming after me. I'm, I'm just going to sort of do the best that I can under the circumstances. And that's really all you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, we do our best against criminals. Uh, if you are a, uh, a dissident in a, in a foreign country, you have to do your best against that country. You really have to pick who your adversaries are. Now, I, I speak to a lot of dissidents who are actually worried. They're working in third world countries. They worry about their governments. You know, legitimately, I often tell them to uh, to get themselves a Chromebook. 
Because yes, of course, Google's going to spy on them, but Google's not their enemy. Mm-hmm. Right? You sort of have, you have to pick who you trust. Got you it. You can't be completely paranoid because you're going to use somebody's phone. You're going to use somebody's door lock. You're going to use somebody's email provider. I mean, some some computer, some word processing software, and you must trust all of those. You can't not trust anything. <laughs> right? You're going to have to go to a restaurant and eat. You must trust their food. Yeah, that's, And really, you just have to be intelligent about who you trust. That's such an interesting dichotomy in your work because it seems, you know, as though on the one hand you are very focused on, you know, when talking about the TSA or, you know, uh, terrorist attacks, things like that. You're, you know, you're very concerned with, I think, if, unless I'm misunderstanding your work, you know, lowering our exposure to those sorts of attacks and taking security precautions that, you know, will rationally reduce those risks as much as possible. But it seems like your work also really recommends – becoming comfortable with risk and, and comfortable with danger to a certain extent. When you say you need to trust those things in your space, are you, to a certain extent, accepting risk in doing so? I mean, we certainly are. Mm-hmm. We're accepting risk when we choose our operating system or cell phone provider or restaurant to have dinner at or you know car to drive. You know, I, I drove today. I accepted quite a lot of risk, probably the riskiest thing I did today. Although I attended the Gay Pride March, and you know, given what happened, maybe that was the riskiest thing. Hmm. You know, but we're going to take these risks all through our lives, and we can't ignore them. The trick is to be intelligent about them. You know, right now, I mean, less now, but certainly ten years ago in our country, risks of terrorism we grossly over-exaggerated. Mm. Risks of automobile accidents we we tend to ignore. Risks of firearms accidents we you know completely ignore. You know, although right now there's a huge debate about, you know, whether to uh, to accept them or not. You know, these are all things that we have to have to work with. We have a lot of psychological biases. A plane goes down, it's in the news, it's a big deal. You know, thirty thousand people die each year in car crashes in the U.S. and we don't even think about it because it doesn't make the headlines. It's normal. Yes. So the rare and spectacular. We tend to over-exaggerate, you know, and, and kind of what I'd like to talk about is to be more rational about this. Mm-hmm. I think when we make smarter decisions, we just live, live better lives, and some of that's taking risk and some of that's avoiding risk. So in a case like the, like the TSA, which, you know, I don't want to over- overemphasize that, you know, how much your work is about the TSA specifically just because we talked about it on the show, but um, in a case like the TSA where you have a government agency sort of perpetrating security theater using security measures that, you know, give people the the illusion that the security is perfect, even though it's not, and asks, you know, sort of invasive things of them. Do you lay that at the feet of a uh, overzealous government agency or at the feet of like a public that uh, that is that is, you know, looking for a solution that based in fear uh, and that, it, you know, isn't accepting the risks properly? So there's also a, a third agent here. There's the our elected officials who want to show that they are providing security. Ah. And what you have is a feedback loop between those three. Hmm. You have fearful people. You have a government needing to reassure, reassure those people and also you know, bolster their reelection chances, establishing a bureaucracy that needs to justify its existence. So all of those three things together cause a vicious cycle where it's much easier to ratchet up security than ratchet down security. Right. Once you make people take off their shoes, nobody wants to be the one to say – you know, we don't have to do that anymore <laughs> because if they make a mistake, they lose their career. So it's very hard when you have something like the TSA entrenched 
to to back it off. That's what I've noticed. I've even noticed that, and you know, tell me if I'm uh, getting uh, recent events wrong, but my understanding is that you know, in the last month, the TSA has been criticized for the lines becoming much much longer. Even the airlines, when you book your tickets now, they say warning: security lines are longer than normal. And what I read was that the culprit for that was that you know, six months ago, they were randomly putting people through TSA pre-check, which I I liked as a uh, thing to do because I, I travel enough, I signed up for TSA pre-check. I wasn't very happy with giving the government my fingerprints and a, and a background check, but I've, you know, not missed flights because of it. And it's, you know, so it's too much of a quality of life upgrade for me to not take. I have to sort of bite my tongue and do it. And Same I, for me. Uh, you as well are in TSA pre-check. Same for me. Same reasoning too. Yep. And But I liked they were putting people randomly through it because to me it looked like the TSA sort of tacitly saying, hey, hey, we know that our screening is a little bit too tough. We're going to step it off in this way that unfortunately entails us putting together a huge database of background checks and fingerprints on law-abiding uh, buying citizens. But, you know, that's the way we're doing it. And so that seemed like they were sort of moving in a slightly more rational direction. But then I read that in response to the incident that we talk about on the show where the, uh, you know, they were audited by another branch of the government and found to miss, what is it, 95% of, of weapons going through, their response to that was to cancel the random pre-check program and to stop putting people randomly through the pre-check line. And the result was that the normal non-pre-check, take your shoes off, take your laptop out of your bag line, got much, much longer. And so their response to being sort of called out as an agency, like, hey, you guys aren't doing your job well, was to ratchet up the security in the wrong direction again. Am I right about that? You know, I think the uh, the lines are, are a different problem. Mm. That Congress cut their funding last year. I, mean, oh. I forget the number. If this was the show, you would pop a magic URL above my head, which would have the number. <laughs> but you know, instead, we have to make listeners look it up. But there was a, a, a significant budget cut for the TSA last year. I see the problem simply as not enough manpower. Wow. I travel a lot. I travel multiple times per week. I see TSA in airports all over the country. And I, when I saw the increase in lines, it was because they didn't have enough lanes open. They didn't have enough people. Mm. They just can't manage the throughput. And, and this is tough. And so I f- uh, firmly blame Congress here. Hmm. I mean, if you want the TSA to do this job, you have to give them the money to hire the people or they're not going to be able to do the job. I mean, yes, uh, I think putting random people through pre-check sped things up. It actually slowed me down because all those people that were sent through randomly were amateurs at the security line yes. and definitely slower and, well, than, than I and all of our, us travel professionals are. But I like the fact that they were streaming through a less stringent security process. Mm-hmm. I thought that was good and, and good for the world. But really, I see it as manpower. And this is why I think the privatization argument makes no sense. I mean the, the problem with the TSA is not who is signing the paycheck of the agents. Right? The problem is there's not enough money to pay them all. And if we increase the money to pay them, whether that paycheck is signed by the U.S. government or some contractor, they're going to follow the same regulations. They're going to follow the same procedures. It doesn't make a difference. But we have to f- either fully fund that or back off on what they're doing. So it sounds like it's just a it, it's just sort of like a holy clusterfuck of a governmental problem where it's it's a bad bureaucracy. Can you say that? I guess it's a podcast. You can say that, right? <laughs> yes, definitely. I absolutely I can absolutely say clusterfuck. I mean, even the wow, show. Say it again. This is awesome. <laughs> Why don't you say it? 
I'm not sure I can. Okay. <laughs> it, 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 it is pretty much a clusterfuck. It's true. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a bad program administered with not enough money uh, using poor standards. I, I mean, do you have hope for the TSA or do you think that that uh, just keeping it to, you know, airports for now uh, for for that system to improve? Or do you think that, you know, uh, lack of ability to ratchet down uh, the security apparatus is going to stop them from ever making, you know, a rational reform? You know, I think it will ratchet down, but just much slower than we'd like. Mm -hmm. Already we're seeing uh, much less focus on liquids you know, you leave your liquids in your bag, and most of the time people don't even notice Yep, that uh, there is the pre-check line. There is these weird ways of expediting uh, screening that involve a, either a hand swab or a dog walking next to you that you sort of don't make much sense but do speed up the process. I think the TSA is trying to be rational within their purview, within their worldview, within their bureaucracy, mm-hmm. but it's going to be hard to – to ratchet things down. I, I do think it's going to happen. It's not going to be till the end of time hmm. we have to take our shoes off to get on an airplane or hover car or teleport or whatever it is that's going to come. Right? That's not true. This will change. The question is how slowly. You know, even with all of this random gun violence, you know, terrorism is not as big a risk as it was 10 years ago. But it's really hard for a politician to ever say that. Well, it's interesting. The the issue that you raise about how uh, important, you know, the the vividness of the event in the news that terrorism and, and mass shootings have as a danger as compared to uh, traffic fatalities is a really interesting one. And I've thought about that many times in relation to gun violence, because it seems that, you know, if I was Obama, for instance, in this uh, at this point in time, there might you know, there would be an argument to say, hey, let's not try to, you know, let's focus government resources on something other than uh, reducing gun violence, because it's far too politically difficult. It's one of the most, you know, politically sticky wickets in the entire country. And the number of people who are killed by by it, while high, is lower than some other issues that maybe we could maybe we could reduce. We could save more lives per dollar, you know, with another issue. Even though that this one is more vivid in the news. On the other hand, it it seems that you know, especially in the last couple months, that uh, you know, with the recent Orlando uh, attack, that the psychic pain caused by uh, these events, by you know, what was simultaneously a mass shooting and a terrorist attack, is so enormous that I don't know. Maybe that. It, you know, counts as uh, it, it does collateral damage to, to people emotionally, even who aren't, you know, initially, you know, it, in the immediate area. Is that, you know, does, it, does that change your thinking on it at all? Or, you know, I don't know. It, it, guns are such a crazed issue in the United States. It's really hard to figure out what the rational path to a rational policy is. Mm. I mean, I'm actually kind of amazed that among the Republicans, uh, fear and hatred of Muslims, terrorists, is taking a back seat to any kind of limits on guns. Yes. I mean, the Republicans are saying it is okay for known terrorists to be able to buy as many automatic weapons as they can. That's really interesting and not what I expected. Yeah. And so right now, the big policy issue is should people on the watch list be allowed to buy guns? Now, this is tough for me. Because I know the watch list is a complete and utter disaster. Yeah. That it is not good uh, politics. It is a secret court. There are innocent people on it. It is a bad, bad thing. And I want the watch list and no flyers to disappear. 
On the other hand, if by some magic a law is passed prohibiting people on the watch list from buying guns, that would be the thing that would bring Republicans and Democrats together to fix the watch list huh? and make sure that only the right people are on it. So, you know, the ACLU came out against this bill yeah, because the watch list is horrible. And it's hard to fault them, but I wonder if there's some kabuki move. Now, I'm not a politician, <laughs> so I probably got this completely wrong that other people are seven moves ahead of me and it's not going to go that way. But that's sort of in, in the Bruce you know, fantasy Congress. That's what happens. That's a really interesting – yeah, it's, it's become such a complicated issue when you have the ACLU coming out against a gun control bill because of how bad the, the terrorist watch list is. And then, yeah, so your fantasy is that the, the Republicans would say, well, as long as we're going to stop people on the terrorist watch list from getting guns, we have to make sure that, that only the, you know, the capital B bad guys are on it. Right, and not all of the innocents. And, of course, that would happen, but – now, this is so, this is actually a, a hard issue, and uh, I, I actually despair for our country sometimes about the gun issue. We, we have we have a massacre, more, more than one massacre every day. Yes, and that's just that's just insane. But that's you know that's a bit of psychology. We tend to react not to absolute risk, but changes in risk. Hmm. Right? Airplane terrorism goes from zero to nine eleven. It's very different that from every day, day in, day out. There are so many car crashes, so many cases of domestic violence, so many cases of handgun violence, that they are much, much worse, but they're static. Very true. So we don't react to them in the same way. And we don't want to clamp down on them in, in the same way and, and say that, yeah, like, you know, no one no one motivates to have an agent sitting outside every car with a breathalyzer or uh, a background check for every gun purchase, uh, actually, <laughs> um, uh, because those are those are more uh, it's like a, it's like an everyday thing that we don't react to emotionally as much. Right. And yet you willingly and I did too, subject ourselves to a background check for getting on our airplanes faster. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's really, you know, if you were an alien dropped down trying to understand this, you'd be real confused right now. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. It, it, it seems to be I, I feel like there is a trend in a lot of sociology, behavioral economics, uh, those sorts of fields to start to embrace the ways in which people uh, uh, work non uh, non-rationally, uh, that, you know, economics used to assume that every single person behaved rationally all the time, and now they're beginning to say, oh, wait, people actually behave very oddly depending on the circumstance in predictable ways. Uh, I believe there's a book called Predictably Irrational that came out a couple years ago. Um, and it, it seems like uh, this is a similar sort of field where we can find those uh, if we can sort of figure out the ways in which people react emotionally to those circumstances, perhaps we can design our security around those strange biases. And, and there's a lot of that going on, both in the economic field and the psychology field. I'm involved in workshops in both economics and security and psychology and security. Hmm. And it's things as simple as warning messages on your computer or how your phone interface works. And and those are, are very much influenced by your, your psychological biases. Right. Now, I mean, here's a good example. You go on, on Facebook and you get a message that says uh, your privacy settings have all changed. Here are some important differences. Would you like to read this 10-page document uh, explaining all the changes and spend <laughs> half an hour figuring out what you really want or do you just want to chat with your friends? Yeah. Right? And, and you, me, and Facebook knows what 99.9% .9 of the people are going to click on. 
And that is a message designed psychologically so the company can get what they want. You know, look the other way. You know, if I am, oh, I don't know, Google, and I want to put up a warning because you're going to a website that I know is malicious, that I know is run by a criminal organization that's going to steal your money. I'm going to put up a warning message, and whatever it says, you're going to read, hi, I'm a message in the way. Click here to make me disappear. Right. But I don't want you to do that. I want you to read what it says and understand it. <laughs> and there's been a lot of design work into making warnings that people actually follow and don't think are just irritants. You know, at that point, Google has your best interest in heart. I know you want to see the, the funny video or the porn or the whatever <laughs> it is you want to see, right? But it's actually bad and Google knows it, right? How do they tell the user? And if you look the way they do it now, you get a warning that you don't get an OK button. You have to get an I, I understand the risks and you get to another page and they really make it hard. And, and that's deliberate design. So we're seeing this kind of economically, psychologically influenced security design in everything, you know, f in your computers, in technology. And, and I'm, I, I think it's a great uh, advance. I think we're going to do a lot better because we want the users on our side and not thinking that we're just annoying them. Yes, that's fascinating. That's a, that's a really wonderful development. I guess my concern is that, you know, people have a reaction against that sort of, you know, it comes off as benign paternalism, you know. Um, like, I can do that to myself, for instance. Uh, you know, I can install a blocker that, you know, I have a blocker installed that lets me only go to Facebook on Fridays because I know that the keyboard shortcut to go there is too ingrained in my fingers, and so I want to set that up. Or I don't buy snacks for my apartment because I know, you know, that sort of sort of management of my own worst impulses and biases. But often when the government tries to do the same thing, when Michael Bloomberg tries to say, hey, you can't buy the big soda, instead you have to buy two small sodas because research shows that this means you'll drink less soda, which we should all agree upon, you know, everybody, everybody reacts very negatively to that. Um, Not everybody, just, I mean, the, the libertarians do, but, mm -hmm. you know, for some of us, we think a little nudging is okay. Yeah. But it really depends on the false alarm rate. So a good example on computers would be those certificate expired warnings. Hmm. SSL produces these warnings, and uniformly, those warnings mean absolutely nothing. And we have all been trained, when we see those warnings, to ignore them. Right. But if, let's make this up, if you get a warning that says, you know, if you click here, some, some guy in, in Romania is going to drain your bank account. And if you click there and the guy in Romania does, or your friend clicked there and you heard the story, then you're happy to see the warning. Because <laughs> you know it's not a false alarm. Yes. You know it's in your best interest. You're going to follow it. So it really depends. And that's also psychological. If we give people too many warnings that just aren't true, I mean, we've all read Boy Who Cried Wolf. We know how the story ends. So we have to make our warnings real mm -hmm. and not, well, we don't know, so we're going to tell you. I mean, too many warnings have been lawyers saying, well, we don't know the risks, so we're going to shove it onto the user. So if something bad happens, we can say in court, well, he clicked okay. It's not our fault. <laughs> Right? That's worse than paternalism. Yeah. Right? That's legal protectionism. So, so I think you're right. There's, there's a danger of paternalism. But when there are actual risks, I think, you know, 
a little nudging by someone who has better information than we are. Like, you know, if you drove down that road, there's a cliff there, the bridge is broken, <laughs> you'll plummet to your death. You know, right, you can argue that putting a sign there is paternalism, but, you know, it actually makes us safer, and nobody really does want to plunge to their deaths. It just ruins your day. Right. We'll be back in a moment after this commercial break. Is it a commercial? It's really just a promo for another great podcast. Well, so right after that, uh, we'll be back talking to Bruce again. So stick around. New to Maximum Fun, the Beef and Dairy Network podcast. The number one podcast for those involved or just interested in the production of beef animals and dairy herds. All sponsored by Grazex, the latest grass replacement pellet from Mitchell's. If it's not Mitchell's, get back in the truck. Find us at MaximumFun.org or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. And if it's not clear, this is a comedy podcast. Beef out. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to Bruce Schneier, the cryptographer and security technologist and author of New York Times bestselling book, Data and Goliath. Let me ask you this, uh, because I know that you've uh, written a lot recently about surveillance and about uh, big data and data collection and that sort of, you know, issue uh, in terms of how much, you know, data about us is being hoovered up by Google, Facebook, uh, every, you, know, um, you know, the government, everything under the sun. How does that general topic interact with the topic of security in your mind? Because I, I see them as next to each other, but the relationship is not entirely clear to me. And it is complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, we are all under pretty much constant surveillance. I mean, the, the uh, you know phone calls we make, things we do on the internet, increasing cameras. I mean, I can go on and on for for chapters, and I actually did in my latest book, and all of the different things we do that are being tagged and recorded and stored. And, and it's a, this is both uh, governments and corporations. I mean, most in in the U.S., it's done by corporations, right? Trying to influence us, trying to manipulate us, right. trying to get us to, to buy stuff. Uh, this data is also used by governments, right? Our government, primarily for law enforcement and anti-terrorism, moved to a government like China and it's used for social control and more undemocratic uh, things. But there's very much a surveillance society built on all of these computer devices we use that naturally produce data. Mm-hmm. So how this affects security is complicated, right? On the one hand, we like it when the FBI solves crime, right? Good for them. We like it when the FBI stops terrorists. I mean, that's what we're paying them for. We actually, you know, if we thought about it like foreign espionage, it's important to our country. But we dislike it when that same technology is being used to identify Muslims in the United States, mm. when it's being used to arrest dissidents in Syria and Turkey and Sudan and Kazakhstan and China and a whole bunch more countries. We dislike it when it's being used to overtly manipulate us or possibly to manipulate politics. We really dislike it when intimate things about us are known by companies stolen by criminals and then published. Nobody (laughs) liked their name being published on the Ashley Madison website. Absolutely. No U.S. government employee liked the fact that China breached the Office of Personnel Management and stole their fingerprint files. That was zero fun. So this data can be used for security, 
more often it's used against our security. But finding that balance is, is not an extremist position on either side. It involves lots of figuring out the details of each individual thing. You know, I got here, I mean, I was, I was driving around today, and there was uh, a lot of traffic. There was, it was Pride Day downtown, and I used Waze. Waze is an app on my phone that gets me navigational data mm-hmm. and traffic data because everybody who uses Waze is under surveillance. <laughs> it's a great app, but it needs surveillance to work. Yes, it's, that's literally what they're offering you is that we surveil where you go and we combine all that surveillance and we give that back to you in the form of driving directions that reflect where everyone is going. That's, that's almost explicitly the pitch. That is the pitch, and it's a pitch we like. And, and I'm not going to say that's, that's a great app. And you can make a similar pitch for medical information, right? That's the pitch the TSA made to you when you, when you got pre-check. You know, we're going to submit everyone to a background check because by doing that, we can get more security to allow you to go to airport security faster, right? There's a bargain here. Now, mm-hmm. in some cases, that's a good bargain. In some cases, that's a crap bargain. And it's up to us to figure out the difference. So in the case of uh, – to go back to the TSA for a second, take the case of TSA PreCheck, the you know, database that I assume they're putting together uh, as a result of PreCheck, do you uh, consider that a fair bargain? Do you think that's a piece of overreach or does that fall on one side or the other for you? If the goal is to figure out case by case uh, which is which. So my feeling is unnecessary. I mean, I, to me, the right level of airport security is pre-9-11 security. Mm-hmm. which effectively means pre-check for everybody without the background check. Right. You know, in a sense, airport security does two things. It stops the random crazies, and pretty much anything does that. And it tries and fails to stop the professional, and mm-hmm. pre-check doesn't help with that. I mean, in a sense, pre-check is just a pre-screening of who should go on the mission. So, you know, airports <laughs> are tough. <laughs> so, you know, in, wait, in a you're, sense... So, so- so you're like, it's literally like the band of terrorists run a bunch of guys through pre-check. They're like, all right, we got 20 of them. Let's send them all through pre-check. Oh, these eight managed to get pre-check. So those are the guys who are going on the, on the attack this week? Well, duh. That's what I would do, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, and you could think of it as that. But you know, airplanes yeah. are different. You know, I, I argue that a lot of the preventive measures that focus on targets are useless because it's so easy to change targets. Yes. Whether it's a stadium or a movie theater or a, a club, or a shopping mall, that there's just too many targets. Right. But airplanes are, are weird because for a couple of reasons. They have peculiar failure modes. And if someone sets off a bomb on a bus, some people die, some people get injured, and some people get away. Someone sets off the same bomb on an airplane, the hull gets breached and everyone dies. Yes. So it has peculiar failure characteristics. It tends to fly to places where people who don't like us live, right? You know, airplanes go to foreign countries and right. come back. Right. And they tend to be national symbols in a way mm. that other things aren't. So I always think airplanes will need some level of protection above, you know, the random place where a bunch of people gather in a small container. Right. But much more than that, isn't necessary. I mean, we're seeing it in the United States, right? Lone wolf terrorists aren't, don't look at TSA PreCheck and say, wow, that's pretty impressive. I'm going to go get a real job. They say, <laughs> whoa, that's pretty impressive. I'm going to change my tactic and target. Yeah, I'll just and, do – And security, that, that all it does 
is force the bad guys to change tactic and targets tend to be wastes of money. You know, I'm in favor of investigation, intelligence, and emergency response. I remember those those being your three uh, your three watchwords, and the first two, intelligence and investigation, are those uh, those are the methods of what finding the cells, finding the perpetrators before the attack takes place, as being the uh, as, as being the method that we should uh, invest more in. And because it works regardless of tactics and target. I mean, a good right. example are the uh, the liquid bombers, right? Arrested by police in their London apartments, two thousand six. They picked a plot that was designed to go through airport security. Right. right? The plot w- would have worked because they chose the plot. They looked at airport security and chose the plot. But they were arrested before they got to the airport. Mm-hmm. So it actually didn't matter if their bombs were liquid or solid or gel or whatever. It didn't matter if their targets were airplanes or shopping malls or you know British Parliament. They were caught through investigative techniques. And that's well, a great success, and we should celebrate stuff like that. Well, so then, how do we? I, I absolutely agree with you uh, that that's a you know that that certainly seems like the model we should be applying more. But then, how do we apply that in you know the the Orlando killings were carried out by you know someone who well actually sorry he's a bad example because I believe he did show up on a few lists before that. But no, but let's let's, know, use, sort of, let's use him as an example. He's actually not a bad example. Because okay. the answer is unfortunate. The answer is you can't. You a can't find guys lone like him. Crazy with a mm-hmm. gun cannot be found. He can only be found if he's part of a conspiracy. Because hmm. right? conspiracies leave trails. Conspiracies make mistakes. Remember right. the nine eleven terrorists were just barely got away with their plot. We had one of them in custody. We had him questioned. We just couldn't get the information to the right people in time. It just hmm. barely worked. But if you are not part of a conspiracy, there is nothing that can be done. And the fact that he was investigated is is important. And the reason he was investigated and cleared, because he wasn't a compelling threat. The FBI is getting tens of thousands of tips, and all but two are false alarms. Right. There's no way to figure out which two they are. It is an impossible task. And this is why, if you are serious about stopping Orlando-style attacks, you have to remove Orlando-style weaponry from the hands of the people who might do that. Got that it. is your only answer. Nothing else will work. Now, you might decide that the Second Amendment is worth an Orlando every month or so, but you must understand that's the decision you're making. There is no other technique because they are lone nuts, because they're... Their pathologies before they do their thing are the same as thousands of other people who don't cross that line. And the moment of crossing happens in secret, and you don't see it. You can't see it. The first manifestation of it is when the shooting starts. Man, that is, uh, that is a very terrible. I know, we're ending thing. on a downer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I think but I mean, that was exactly the question that that I had for you was how do we prevent those events from happening? It's a, it's a, so ironic then that the solution that is being pushed for is to deny those weapons only to the people on the watch list, because this was an attack carried out by, you know, yeah, that that lone wolf who was was converted in the middle of the night, you know, after he read his 10,000th radicalizing tweet, he finally was like, all right, I'm going to go for it. And there was, you know, nothing else to be done. 
Yeah, to be fair, that's not the solution being proposed. That is the one bill that the Democrats thought they could catch the Republicans in fair a enough. bind. I mean, the, the solution that's being proposed are our sane gun laws. I mean, right. there's a whole lot of weird stuff happening because it's Congress and nothing makes sense and, and everything is, is complicated. Right? This is the bill forcing the Republicans to choose between right, fear of, of Muslim terrorists and fear of gun control. And, you know, I guess they call them wedge issues and they're useful in politics for lots of reasons that I try very hard not to care about. But you know, so what's going on is very much theater. You know, even though there is a, a majority in the U.S. in favor of sane gun laws, there's a very powerful or it's perceived powerful lobby against them. And in our country, money talks a lot more than, than voters. Right. I and mean, this is true for a lot of issues. I don't mean to pick on guns. Yeah, it it seems like we need to make theater out of the very first uh, bill that's being passed simply because the the issues become so cancerous and such like a, a deep wound that, you know, progress needs to be made on a symbolic front before it can even be made on a uh, on a rational front. Yeah, and optics do matter. And I know yeah. this in issues. But, you know, I try very much to be a technologist and to figure out the correct policy. I mean, I, I understand that many of my policies are untenable politically, <laughs> but I, I try not to let that bother me too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you have to, to to remain sane. But, yeah, it always raises the question of uh, – I mean, I'm drawn to thinkers like yourself, obviously, um, uh, who sort of come up with like this would be the sanest policy. If we look at it rationally, this is clearly what we should do. And then after I fully understand that position and, and the uh, the work that went into it and I'm fully convinced of it, the question becomes – how to accomplish it. And that is uh, where, you know, that that often is a much harder question to answer, it often seems. Yeah, it's a different question. In, in a sense, as an engineer, I search for the truth, right? What's the right answer? Right. In politics, you search for the compromise. And it's a fundamentally different way of approaching problems. And one that I'm, you know, gaining more appreciation of and, and trying to be a little more savvy towards. But it just seems so freaking irrational sometimes that it hurts. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's often that desire for uh, wh- why can't we, you know, let the engineers run the country and, uh, you know, simply set up the uh, perfect sane solution for all of us. But then I yeah, suppose we I'm not we'd sure be... you want engineers to run the country. I think that would be a little <laughs> embarrassing. But there is certainly in the U.S. today this very strong belief that experts don't have the answer, that in fact mm. if you – studied the problem and got a degree in it and, you know, have rationally approached what to do and have solutions that by definition you're untrusted. And that's very weird, but we do see it. You see it in climate change. You see it in gun policy. You see it in many technologically informed issues that if the tech goes against you, you blame the tech. Like total opposite of Star Trek, right? In Star Trek, the uh, technologists say, this is the way it is, and Picard says, oh, yeah, I guess that's right. What do we do now? Right? He, there's a fundamental acceptance of the technology as something that is somehow more true than any policy decisions, and that isn't true in the United States these days, and that is frustrating. We really need technologically informed policy, that policy can't go against tech. It has to accept what the science says as real and then craft the best policy given the reality. And if you don't like the science, 
know, that's just the way it goes. It's not something you can say, well, the science is wrong. You know, I, I, that's, that's fanciful. You know, and again, this is way bigger than any of the issues we're talking about, but you do see it a lot in security because there's a lot of political beliefs that flow into our security solutions. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is very striking to me that you know I grew up I grew up in a family of scientists and you know my parents are both PhDs and my sister's a science journalist now and you know so I grew up with a lot of science you know watching uh, there's a huge you know science TV boom when I was a kid you know there was like Bill Nye the Science Guy and Mr Wizard and stuff like that and uh, I was sort of brought up thinking of as science and technology as being you know you look to those people as experts who have the answers you know who say okay well if science says it we should uh, we should go with it. Um, but uh, that doesn't seem to be the I, – I'm very struck as an adult by how much, uh, you know, experts in science are, are things that people are suspicious of, almost yeah. constitutionally. And that's basically your show. Your show is saying that, look, here's what the experts say. Here's what the experts say. We're ignoring it. This is stupid. Here's what the experts <laughs> say. I mean that, that's your shtick, and it, and it works well because it oh, turns out that we ignore experts all the time. It's such a it's such a difficult problem. Um, returning back to uh, digital security quickly, um, it seems that you know so much data is being harvested at every moment, everywhere, everywhere that we turn. That uh, there's an extremely like our own security as individuals uh, seems extremely porous right now. I'm always struck by. Uh, how many stories there are, you know, if you read any sort of, you know, tech press, it seems like every three months there's another story of a prominent journalist or someone else whose, you know, account was hacked by uh, a very, you know, sophisticated social engineering scheme, like the kind of situation where, you know, someone calls up Amazon and they have the last four digits of this number and they give it to them. They're able to get the first three digits of a different number and they're able to, you know, sort of work their way through the system that way. Uh, are we sort of at a point where, you know, our digital security apparatus is so porous that there's really no way to make oneself secure? I think there is. I mean, the term I use is fragile. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of fragilities. And, and what you're talking about are interesting because they're fragilities between systems, that one system might be good, the other system might be good, but put them together and there is this emergent property of insecurity that's right. nobody's fault but is, is an effect. And we're seeing more of these, and I think as we move to an Internet of Things, we're going to see even more of them. So I do think we are at a critical juncture. I don't think all is lost. I think things are fragile. I think we do need more government policy, really, to, to regain security simply because these individual things are all economic failures, that you're not going to have the market fix them precisely because they fall between the cracks. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I do worry now, but people are realizing it. You know, this is the problem, again, as a technologist, that a lot of our issues are fundamentally policy issues and not tech issues. I mean, there's mm. not much I or you can do because this data, as you point out, is in the hands of third parties. That, that example you showed is, you know, uh, someone breaking into my account, not by going to me and stealing my data, but by going to... Google or Amazon or, or Apple or some company that has my data, tricking them, right. using that to trick somebody else. Uh, you know, I'm a victim of fraud, and I did nothing wrong. They all did something wrong, but it wasn't individually wrong. It was only wrong in aggregate. You know, these are very much market failures, and without some good regulation, I think it's going to get a lot worse. Now, 
you know, again, this gets back to another politically untenable solution, right? More government regulation. But, you know, fundamentally, I just don't see this as something a market can fix for a whole lot of very precise reasons. Sure, but it almost seems as though the government has the same incentive as the corporate entities to downplay that that kind of security. I mean, uh, we we're doing a uh, you know episode of the upcoming season of the show about Google and Facebook and about how you know these are companies that deal in data, right? That they're that is what their stock in trade is. They're selling you know eyeballs to advertisers, and and uh, in order to target those advertisers and get the value of those eyeballs up, they aggregate all this data on them, and so that data is really you know those are their widgets, and so they you know don't have that much of an incentive to protect you in that way. I've always read, uh, I read a while ago that the reason Apple emphasizes security more than, you know, Google or uh, other companies is because they're in the business of selling you hardware rather than, uh, you know, selling data to advertisers. So they're able to sort of differentiate themselves in that way. But the government seems to have as much of an interest in assembling databases on people as uh, you know, as Google does, right? And if the if the problem is the interaction between you know, well, Amazon has their database, Google has their database. If you get a little bit from the one, you can get into the other. Then it seems that the that the government is just another failure point in a way. It is certainly. I mean, I think we need to put pressure on government to protect our security and privacy and not to abuse it. So mm-hmm. you know, before you get political change, I think you need a change in norms and a change in in public perception. I think that's happening slowly. Uh, Snowden caused some of that. Uh, right. Privacy is a bigger issue every year. It's not yet to the point where it's a, a political issue to mm-hmm. any real extent. You know, both uh, you know, I mean, no candidate is, is really pro-privacy. You have very few people in the House and Senate. But I think mm-hmm. that is changing. I think that will change in our lifetime. But this is something that it, you know, it's not really a, a tech problem to fix. We can fix it around the edges. I mean, I could talk about good hygiene for your computer security, but truth is, most of your data is held by some third party. Right. And, and this is the lesson of Snowden: that technology can subvert policy, but also that policy can subvert technology. And without both of them working together, we get neither. So it, it, it's tough right now. We really are in the era of collect it all. And governments do it, corporations do it, everybody is still punch drunk on data and Mm. wants all of it. You know, that's going to change. I saw an article in the Washington Post about a month ago about new startups that are noticing that collecting data has liability. People steal it, it gets published, you get embarrassed, and maybe Uh, we shouldn't collect everything. Right, it's almost like you're starting starting to change. It's almost like when you're collecting data, you're – you're suddenly, you suddenly have a bank vault that people want to break into if you're collecting it. That's right. And if you don't collect it, so maybe you look at what's valuable and what isn't. Now, we're seeing more research on what data is valuable. It turns out a lot of the stuff collected isn't very useful. The whole big <laughs> data movement really sold everyone a bill of goods, which is collect everything right. and then figure out how to use it later. And that's <laughs> only a good idea if collecting everything doesn't cost you anything. Ah. Now, of course, data storage is free, data, pro- data processing is free, but having data has liabilities. That's the new thing people are noticing. So I'm seeing some change. I'm seeing the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, do a lot more to protect people's privacy. They have a very limited mandate. They can only deal with unfair and deceptive trade practices. So a company like Facebook that says, we're going to collect everything about you and sell it. FTC has no 
no argument with them because they're not being unfair. They're not being deceptive, right? They're just being unethical, and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but it, but for the companies that are being deceptive and are being unfair, there's increasing FTC investigations and penalties that's making companies think twice ah. about doing these things without explicit consent. So we are seeing some movement, both on the government side and corporate side. You know, the, the courts are moving slower, but I, I still have a, a belief that in the next decade we'll see significant changes there, you know, with liabilities. And, and when your data gets stolen and a bad thing happens, that that third party that lost it might be liable. So your your solution is that, you know, rather than obsessing over, yeah, computer hygiene on your own laptop or uh, deleting your Facebook account or, you know, not using a cell phone, something like that, that eventually, you know, this sort of needs to become a political issue that in the same way that you have people concerned about uh, gun control, gun rights, that sort of issue that will that one day sort of a political movement of privacy or data rights will arise. And in order to, uh, you know, continue those first few steps that you're talking about. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, certainly you have to take the tech steps you can. But advice like don't have an email address, don't have a cell phone, don't have a Facebook account, that's kind of stupid advice. Yeah. You need those things to be a fully functioning human being in the early decades of the 21st century. Absolutely. So you do what you can and you need to push the policy front because that's where the real changes are going to happen. Because it's not the data on your computer, it's your data on Google servers. Well, that's a wonderful place to leave it. Thank you so much for uh, talking to me about this, Bruce. This was fun. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Bruce for coming on the show and taking the grave security risk of sharing his voice with us. You can only imagine how easy it will be to break into one of his voice-secured vaults now that you have a recording of him speaking and you can piece together you know, his secure passcode from that. I know you guys are hackers. Come on. Don't play with me. Uh, so that was Adam Ruins Everything the Podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in on July 20th. Uh, our producer of this podcast is Shara Morris, and if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating or a comment wherever you subscribe. Look, you can leave a one-star rating. I'll, I'll Be honest, you know. Tell me what you think of the show. Please don't, but you can. I won't be angry if you do. And once again, Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show is coming back August 23rd on True TV. That's going to be Tuesdays starting August 23rd. We got it for a bunch of Tuesdays in a row. You'll be able to see the show. All new topics, all new ruins. It's going to be a blast. And and in the meantime, you can find clips and full episodes at TrueTV.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Until then, we'll see you soon. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.